Hi, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. Today our guest is Michael Garfield, the host of the Santa Fe Institute's Complexity Podcast, some 84 episodes featuring conversations with some of the world's smartest and most interesting complexity scientists. Michael is also an artist, musician, writer, editor, organizer, and cultural change agent. Let's begin. Michael Garfield, it's nice to see you. Thanks, likewise. Yeah, thanks for joining me on uh, uh, this episode of Making Sense of Complexity. Um, first of all, where, where are you uh, uh, calling in from and what's the weather like there? Uh, we're in Santa Fe, New Mexico, me and my my wife and kids and cat and turtles and a bonsai I'm afraid my friend killed while we were away on vacation last week. Um, and uh, weather here is drought. Um, things are reasonably green, all things considered, but uh, we haven't had rain in quite a while. And, you know, I mean, anybody who's been following national news knows that we've had the, the biggest forest fire in New Mexico history this year. Um, one of two that were bracing Santa Fe on either side. And um, that's been real sad. I mean, I'm sure people living in, you know, much of the rest of the world are already sort of familiar with this, this yeah. type of tragedy. But it's... Um, you know, I've had friends lose their homes this year, and uh, apparently the bigger of the two fires was started by some foolish forestry service person doing a controlled burn out of season. Um, I don't know how someone from Oregon was responsible for a controlled burn in New Mexico, but apparently they, uh, you know, they were not aware that m this time of year is incredibly windy. And yeah. so they started a fire that just took off. Yeah. Um, well, are those other conditions normal for Arizona at this time of year? Or is or, it New Mexico? Or yeah. is it... Uh, I mean, yeah. they're, they, March and April tend to be very, very windy. Yeah. Um, that's not unusual. Yeah. Um, but you would hope with a little bit of the snow, there'd be some moisture, moisture kind of hold down the... There wasn't the a lot of snow this year, yeah. is the thing. I mean, that's sort of what controls, yeah. you know, what yeah. determines um, summer precipitation. And... Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, this is sort of just one of those things about, you know, if we want to just jump right into uh, complex systems kind of thinking about this, like that's, you know, that's the classic problem of whatever, whatever made it more efficient in someone's eyes to outsource forest management out of state and bring someone in with no local knowledge of this place to you know, perform a, a high stakes operation like a controlled burn. Mm. Um, it's clear that on the, you know, on the time scale that actually matters for these kinds of determinations, that was a terrible idea. Mm. Um, and mm. so, you know, you have the same kind of, you know, this 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 constant clash between sort of individual and in institutional or, you know, local, regional and global concerns, you know, the short term and the long term horizons. And uh, hopefully this got through to people that they need to think differently about uh, how these things are regulated. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's one example of, uh, 
uh, yeah, uh, the title is Making Sense. So one of the ways that people make sense is to follow a set of rules or instructions that are that are fixed and, and uh, determinate and uh, think that, that they apply to all things that they don't apply to. Um, and uh, there's a better way from thinking about it from a compl complexity, you know, dynamic system standpoint to think about things as, as more open and not necessarily uh, uh, amenable to dogmatic kinds of approaches or hierarchical or fixed, fixed process approaches. You really do need that local, that local knowledge and the actual knowledge of what system you're dealing with in order to be able to make better predictions. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, that's like, uh, you know, Nora Bateson talks a lot about warm data. Uh, which is a kind of a similar notion, you know, that, that the model is never, you know, it's the map and territory kind of yeah. tension and that, you know, your models are never uh, adequate on some level. And, you know, I love, I love getting into it with her about this because obviously like the model is really in some way the best we're ever going to get. Um, and it, the model is not a fixed object. It's an evolutionary product and it's constantly adapting. Um, in, unless it's not. I mean, you and I, before we started this call, talked about the latest episode that I did of, of Future Fossils 186, where um, I was objecting to uh, the, you know, the commonly held conviction among very intelligent people that there are certain questions that are not sort of fit for scientific inquiry, you know, weird, weird things that people are quick to dismiss in order to, to patrol the perimeter of, of, you know, some kind of belief system um, that is not in itself actually scientific and that, you know, that science is really uh, borderless as far as, you know, what, what is worthy as an object of rigorous scrutiny. But, uh, you know, we all have real limits to our attention and to our, our resources that can be brought to bear on things. And so there is a there is a sense in which all of us, no matter how well intended, do uh, foreclose upon certain lines of inquiry simply because, you know, we confuse not having the time or the interest with, you know, to, to study a particular thing with it not being worthy of study. Mm -hmm. um, but at any rate, yeah. Yeah. And the, so the Forest Service, you know, they have a particular way of looking at things and, and uh, you know, they follow, they follow the things that make sense to them, but it, you know, misses the mark on some occasions. And just like, like uh, there are scientists in the, you know, in the world of, you know, physics or cosmology or biology that get certain fixed notions that they feel are the right answer. And, and then they're going to dismiss the things that aren't, that aren't consistent with that. So that tends to, tends to narrow down. So that's, that's a process of uh, dogmatization, that's a funny word, um, that really applies to, doesn't it apply to all, all aspects of human endeavor we we want to we want an answer we want a fixed answer and so we we lay down the guardrails and says it has to be this way yeah and you know that's forgivable i think on some level i, I mean at the at the at the level that you know each of us individually have to close the books on something you know but like my uh i mean this is where the tension 
lies and the, the tragedy of all of this lies. You know, um, I was, uh, I had my car totaled in a hit and run last year and my daughter and I were nearly killed. Luckily we walked away from this wreck uh, reasonably unscathed, but you know, the, the police on site responding to this wreck were very eager to find the, uh, the, the perp that just drove away from the, the, the crime scene. And uh, somehow a friend of ours managed to get a photograph of the car as it was driving away with a mostly identifiable license plate. And we gave this photo to the police and nothing ever came from it. And it's like, look, I know you guys are dealing with gang violence and homicides and so on, but like, it's not a big, it's not a big city. We're talking, you know, this is a city of 80,000 people. There are probably 30 or 40 vehicles of this description on record and of them, you know, only maybe two with the same three identifiable numbers. I mean, this is not a hard thing to find. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, I mean, this is sort of related to perhaps issues of the great resignation uh, that, you know, people just walking away from their jobs during and after, you know, the, the crest of the COVID pandemic. And, and it's certainly something that I feel at work uh, with a, you know, a small working for a small nonprofit that's, you know, chronically dealing with what uh, Doug Rushkoff called present shock, which was a big inspiration for me in, in my thinking and my, my podcasting where, you know, you're just assailed by competing demands for your attention. Uh, but the point is that, you know, that how uh, an organization or a state or a marketplace determines what's valuable and how people determine what's valuable is constantly at odds. These two things are at, always at odds with each other. And so, you know, there's this um, this notion of, of, of uh, course graining, right, of the resolution at which uh, a system is aware of its its. Uh, various interacting components at the micro scale, you know, so we think of ourselves as like, you know, composed of, you know, organs and tissues and so on. And so we're, we're happy to like blow out our, our gastrointestinal, you know, flora with antibiotics in order to rid ourselves of a disease and, you know, not at all, you know, or, or amputate something. Um, and then, you know, that's, it's, it's only viable due to the, the sort of willful ignorance that we have with respect to, you know, the, the cells. So each of us being like cells in the body of yeah. something, you know, we're, yeah. we're, yeah. Uh, we're constantly so, falling through the cracks. Anyway, and rant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let me, let me back that up and say, is there a better way? You know, if we, we have this sense that, uh, we like, we like simple answers we take a fixed answer and we'll run with it. You know, but but that's not always the best answer because uh, sometimes we're ignoring stuff. Sometimes we're putting the blinders on. You know, sometimes we're we're not relating to the environment based upon the actual information coming in. You know, so so how does a complex adaptive system do a better job at you know making the right choices? I'm not sure that we can. Um, I mean, there is again, there's iterative incremental improvement 
of the ways that we gather information, the ways that we act on that information. Um, but there's no getting around, you know, like this this whole thing about you know big data and uh, you know the, the 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 desire of people in working in in tech now to create a sort of one-to-one -one model of reality. You know, for people who've seen, you know, who have read Borges or saw the, the third season of Westworld or work at Google, you know, no, these people that are aware of this, this sort of moonshot project to create a digital twin of our planet. And of course, in so doing, um, you know, this is the, a big problem that I talk about a lot on complexity and on future fossils, the, the problem of not knowing how to render all value with uh, you know economic models, um, not knowing what when we're trying to establish you know the value of a, a you know a, an acre of rainforest, uh, and not knowing actually all of the relationships between the organisms in that acre and and between them and everything else in the yeah. world, and so we put a money value on that acre and then you know 20 years later the science changes and we realize that we had you know that there was invisible labor going on you know that we right. were leaving all of the but of course like you try to chase that and it's a it's a sort of you know you swallow the spider to catch the fly thing and and eventually you know the a attempting to make a more and more complete model of the world um means that we're the, the computational and energetic resources required in such an effort um, end up undermining the systems you're trying to study you know like right, right. like Let's you, see, you, you can't say, do it the, yeah yeah there's the saying about uh, perfection is the enemy of the good right um, you just you just can't you could chase down those rabbit holes forever and you could never get the final answer so you have to make approximations you have to make guesses you have to use heuristics you know, some kind of process of trying to make sense of the things that are disparate and all over the map, and you just sort of have to kind of narrow that down. But the point I'm trying to make is you don't want to do that with just a dogmatic response that says, oh, hell with it, we're just going to do this, you know, and this is what I want to do. You know, I can't make sense of this this uh, stuff that's going on, so I'm, I'm just going to buy into this and forget about all the rest of it, which is what humans, you know, have a tendency to do. But if we, if we want to, if we want to come to a, a better place of, you know, making sense so that we can make better decisions, you know, what are some of the things that we need to really pay attention to? Okay. Being open to the fact that, you know, okay, we don't know the answers, right? So that's, that's one thing. We have to be open to the possibilities. We have to watch out for those dogmatic tendencies to insert themselves so that we think we know when we really don't know, right? So that's openness and uh, avoiding that dogma. So, um, you know, a little bit of doubt about our own convictions is useful, but we don't want to layer into skepticism or, you know, denial or just rejecting things that might, uh, you know, might seem like fringes, but, you know, could have some validity to them, right? Does that make sense to sort of take those principles in and, you know, help it to, to shape the way we deal with these uncertainties and the fact that we can't know everything? 
I mean, skepticism in its original sense. Uh, my, my friends who host the Weird Studies podcast had a great rant on this a while back. Um, skepticism in, in the way that we people tend to talk about it now is roughly synonymous with denial. Um, but yeah. skepticism as it was originally articulated means something more like the doubt uh, of Zen. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's more like what you're talking about. The... Mm-hmm. the you know, a, a sense of, uh, you know, a commitment to not prematurely closing on, on a question. And of course, yeah. like that, I, again, like just to play, you know, sympathy for the devil here, like I really do have a lot of, um, compassion, I guess, for the need for people to act on a an understanding you know whether or not that that understanding is is assumed final uh that you know we we're in a sticky situation here uh as a species now where we're dealing with most of the problems that that really matter to us at a civilizational scale are too complex to be properly understood by us and yet we have to do something and we have to do something relatively soon. And so, you know, this, this is a, uh, you know, we're on a, a kind of a, a crisis footing with all of this stuff, like, like uh, global warming or like the, you know, the, you know, deforestation or the control or of big pan- data pandemics. Big. Yeah. Ma- you know, high frequency trading algorithms and interlocked banks, you know, yeah. and these like cascading failures that happen due to small, you know, almost immeasurably small, uh, you know, f- failures. Lack of, re- lack of resilience. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like, but yeah, but like, yeah. how do you, how do you, you have to, you're, I think that, I mean, ultimately I wrote a science fiction story a few years ago called an oral history of the end of reality. That was about the epistemic shock to society due to deep fakes. Hmm. And, and just this question of like, what happens when we lose this naive confidence in the veracity of our recordings, you know, what happens when we can no longer trust our eyes and ears and, you know, the forensics is sort of locked in this, this losing arms race against counterfeiting. And, you know, what I came to uh, was that with any luck, we emerge from this crisis as better scientists, you know, that, that we become much more comfortable with uncertainty and we become much more comfortable articulating ourselves, uh, our positions in terms of confidence intervals. Um, Mm -hmm. you can probably hear my kid crying across the room here. I'll just give it a second. Uh, Speaking of confidence intervals or, or uncertainties or unpredictabilities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I made the, I made the point to somebody that, that, uh, children are the, the uh, ultimate, complex adaptive system because they're unpredictable and they're and they're uh, adaptive from moment to moment and uh, it's a great lesson for for people to uh, you know to see the uh, the the vagaries the uncertainties and also the beauty and the joy that happens instantaneously yeah you definitely get a sense for just how you know I mean it's it's sort of like the way that my buddy Mark Nelson who was one of the eight people locked inside biosphere two back in the nineties for two years when they were, they were trying to simulate the whole 
biosphere inside this building in Arizona. And uh, you said, you know, you could, you could see right away how, for instance, accidentally misthreading a glue bottle would show up in their atmospheric readers inside the building. You know, you'd see that the things were out of balance. You know, you'd see these, these microscopic changes that would magnify just due to this, the size of this, the system in, in miniature. And, and so, you know, they had a, uh, a, a spike in CO2 at one point that forced them to open the building to the atmosphere so that they didn't all suffocate to death. Yeah. And, yeah. you yeah. know, and so like, you know, they were able to achieve a runaway greenhouse scenario in under two years just because this, this atmosphere was so small. Mm -hmm. And there's something like that with the kids, right? Which is that like, the rate at which they move through their emotional repertoire is so much faster than it is with adults. You know, this right. talk about like scaling laws and you know, right. the, the mouse and the elephant having the same number of heartbeats. You I mean, you see, right. you, you see the, the sort of nonlinear cause and effect stuff happen so rapidly. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a model system in the sense that, you gain a lot of insight into these these things as they occur for you as an adult, um, but at a much slower time scale that you might be, you might find easier to to uh, or like harder to notice. Yeah, and and that time scale that we observe as adults is really a bit of an illusion because it all starts with a time scale at the level of bio biomolecular activity within and and in context of the cells, and that is you know picoseconds and you know, incredibly fast uh, things that are happening and changing and morphing and and yet somehow this process ends up in, you know, the emergence of the cellular dynamics and the way the cells work together and then the, the cells actually part of this, uh, this, this unique human being that is going through a developmental process as neurons are formed and connections are made and you know, things are, things are learned and built into the system. So there's a, there's a fantastic and complex learning process that takes place in, you know, in every organism and particularly in every human being that, that uh, kind of baffles the imagination to, you know, to contemplate. And yet where it ends up with these, you know, lovely individuals with, with uh, deep social capacities and, you know, joy and love and, Frustration and everything else that goes goes along with it, um, you know, that blows the mind and takes the breath away in terms of what uh, you know the actual the actual reality that we're living in. So um, it probably makes sense to be open to what that might be about and where it might be going because we certainly don't we certainly don't have all the answers as you talked about in in terms of the institutional dynamics or climate dynamics. We don't have all the answers. But uh, we certainly have the responsibility, if we take our responsibility to these, you know, beautiful little ones and ourselves seriously, to try and do better, you know, make, making choices, making decisions now because we're recognizing the necessity of doing that and we have to do it as best we can. And so that gets me back to the, the, uh, the skepticism, the hard skepticism that we see so much of, which is really a form of denialism or you know what the heck why uh, why am I going to worry about this thing that I can't make any sense of it makes no sense and you know and you know 
thousand years ago, two hundred years ago, it may have been that the society had a meta narrative that people were largely buying into that kind of helped organize, you know, the the standards and the guardrails about how people thought, how people made choices, how people behaved. You know, a lot of it was baloney, but it uh, at least those that succeeded in the you know, and the uh, those narratives that succeeded in helping those uh, societies and nations and cities and groups uh, survive, thrive, expand, had to have some positive relationship with the world around them. It was an effective way of making those decisions, that meta-narrative that allowed people to kind of get organized, whether it was a theological organization or whether it was just the social organizations or power structures of city-states that, you know, allowed things to function more efficiently and make it through to what we now recognize as, you know, the scientific revolution, the industrial age, all those fantastic, you know, things that have delivered so much benefits. But, you know, now we don't have that narrative that, that we can see. Science had that narrative, right? The mechanistic worldview and, you know, everything fitting and determinism and cause and effect and all that beautiful mechanistic kind of a, approach to things. That's fallen apart. That's not working anymore. So, you know, where do we go to try and uh, shape those collective decisions that we're responsible for making to do a better job and go go forward in a positive way? So that's kind of what, what the big question is we've got a couple of things you know stay open you know be 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 doubtful of your own knowledge but not skeptical about everything else and uh you know so what else works well i mean just to to riff on your point here for a minute before i try to answer that question uh i think about you know peter turchin wrote that article on you know do big societies need big gods because the you know, the the great monotheistic religions seem to have emerged in his view as a way of organizing collective activity at the scale of these, you know, these metropolitan, you know, the, the, the emergent city states. Mm-hmm. And, you know, elsewhere, uh, Dan Sperber and, and Mirta Galasic both have done research on, you know, rationality and, and decision making and have made the point that you know often social cohesion is more important than empirical you know validity you know that um Galasic, when i interviewed her on complexity episode nine talked about how pulling people's pulling people about what they think their friends and family are going to do in an election is a more accurate census than pulling people about what they think they themselves will right, do right because it turns out people are are more than happy to change their minds at the last minute once they know you know the quorum comes back and, and yeah. they know their their friends are all going to vote for trump and they don't you know it's more important that they that they stay in line with their the social group upon which they're intimately Inter- interdependent right, than it right. is for them to and, and so you see this I mean this is again this gets back to the question about um, you know the way that 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 scientific decisions are are pursued or ignored yeah, you know that yeah. that uh, you know Jeffrey Kripal 
you know, he wrote this book called The, the Flip, where he talked about how, you know, a lot of scientists uh, turn out to have had some kind of mystical experience that called into question for them the, the, the basis of their convictions in, in material, you know, in, in, you know, scientific materialism. Yeah. But uh, they can't do anything about it. They can't say anything about it because they jeopardize their careers. Right. If they and that's that's an interesting uh, sidebar that I, I want to talk about in a little bit. But I wanted to get back to this idea yeah. that the social cohesion is more important than factual accuracy and that that big societies need, you know, need big gods. Religion also provided something else. In addition to the sort of the cohesive organization, it also provided fundamental answers to questions that all humans are prone to ask and and so again that is that is a way that society is not only organized in a way that was good for the society but it also met those needs of those individuals and now in a secular society where you know we've got the we've got the appeal to the head of science and rationality and you know those empirical values where is the appeal to the heart what is it that draws people uh, from an from an empathic or social cohesion standpoint what what draws them into a way of thinking about these the you know the 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 values and the epistemological basis of empirical science um, you know what draws them into the heart what's answering those big questions for them and and in the 20th century, I think uh, the, the ability of science to answer those questions really fell apart. It was a sense that they could do it. And, and so scientists are now dealing with theological issues. And, you know, it's not answering the need of the society that has been created that's come out of that. So we're finding, we're, we're displacing that, the needs that we have at the heart level with things like entertainment and diversions and uh, distractions and you know those are the things that we fill fill that emptiness with so so we need some way from complexity science or theology or metaphysics or something we need something to help human beings connect at the heart level with our explanations for how things work and so now I wanted to ask you, because you are a musician, you're an artist, so these, these are the non-rational or pre-rational parts of making sense of things. And I just wanted to ask you about how that, how that works for you. How do you, how do you, you know, what is it that you feel? Where do you, where do you go in your music or your art? That, that has that sense of satisfaction and completion and connection, or, or maybe it doesn't. Well, I mean, so I would interrogate that just a little bit because I think, uh, okay, so there's, f first of all, I think that what we have lost in the modern era has more to do sort of with a, a, a function of church or of you know uh, these these traditions that isn't necessarily about the narrative per se uh, that is you know as Alain de Baton has noted that you know atheist churches still work 
Um, you know, there's this great experiment going on in, in, in Europe, as I, I'm sure you know, of people realizing that the communitas provided by, you know, a weekly gathering um, is in some respects even more significant than the content that is explored in that structure. Um, that, you know, that there's something about living in the, in the space with regular encounters with and, and uh, you know, the, the mesocosmic, you know, the guilds and sports clubs and, and pubs and these things. And then that's actually what's been uh, jeopardized not through an effort to understand the world scientifically, but to operate on that understanding through the, you know, the accidentally self-destructive pursuit of convenience and efficiency, you know, through the erosion of the human sphere by economies of scale, by, you know, these, uh, you know, the outsourcing of, of labor, you know, that we're, we're witnessing. Uh, ultimately, I think, you know, I'm, I'm interviewing Parag, uh, Parag Khanna here soon about his book, Move, in which he, as an unabashed technocratic globalist, is making the argument for the opening of borders because basically we've, we're aging out as a society uh, that you know, that birth rates are declining because the cost of living is going up as we become more and more urban. And, and so we're going to need people who can cross uh, national borders in order to provide care for the elderly and, and other, you know, other things. That and are, other things. And, and that, that, but yeah. things that, you know, like the work nobody yeah. wants to do, right? Yeah. The building yeah. of houses, the farming of fruit and so on. Um, and that, you know, this is, a, this is a constant point in the immigration debate. And I think he's right. Um, but... You know, it's, you know, the, the, at the same time, you know, I'm, I am not at all a proponent of, you know, this sort of parochial nationalist thing, this, this spirit that has possessed so many people around the world. Or, or, or sports teams or celebrity, you know, blah, blah, you know, or, you know, the, 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 the monarchist, you know, fascination oh, or, the, or, the, or the strongman fascination that we see in right. parts of the world. So those are all things that seem to be mistaken trajectories, you know, from the past that we've inherited in the kind of world we live in now. How do we how do we find a way to transcend those? You know, the communitas, the community is is great, but it tends to it tends to hold together and then oppose the we-they phenomenon that comes out of it. So anytime you're holding on to those, those limited sets of communities, um, you know, without some sort of grand connecting sense, you're risking the, the retreat to, to tribalism and to a, a, a rejection of others and the xenophobia that goes along with it. And we're seeing that worldwide now. So people are, are uh, identifying with their sports teams and their local communities and their, you know, and their cities and their nations. And, and then it becomes this stasis of uh, entrenched, uh, non-productive sets of relationships that isn't going anywhere. So if the, community, if the community spirit and that sense of engagement at the personal level and the appeal to the heart is part of what people need to really make sense of their world, 
how do we take that to a point where it's a set of, say, global identifications as opposed as opposed to parochial identifications? So, so, and and from complexity science, you know, we know effectively everything's connected to everything else. We now know that our DNA is in every other human, you know, on the face of the planet. So there are, there are narratives about the connection with people across the globe that you know. Can we then, can we migrate to those ways of making sense of things from a global perspective rather than being stuck with our, you know, our local sports teams and our nation states and our strongman leaders and all the rest that seems to be so satisfying? Well, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's complicated, right? Because on the one hand, I don't, I actually don't, I think that there's, again, another discrimination here between uh, rooting for, a sports team you know like I, I see people here in santa fe with kansas city chiefs hats on after the chiefs win the super bowl and it's like well are, i you know I, i'm from kansas city are, are you from kansas city no it's like so why do you why did you you know how have you been wrapped up into this um you know and and with again like you know strongman leader it's like i've never met this guy i never will he lives thousands of miles away from me you know, how did we get to a point where people feel again? And I, I think it's, you know, the, again, it's the displacement or the dislocation. Um, people are still going to express this human urge for a, a like a localism or a regionalism. Mm -hmm. um, but it has been uh, expropriated by these sort of more malevolent strains of, uh, you know, governance at, at scale. Um, where, you know, like William Irwin Thompson, like, you know, the, the great late historian I'm constantly referencing on future fossils is, is, you know, was fond of calling it the military entertainment education complex. industrial complex. <laughs> yeah, that, that was it. Yeah. Thanks to Dwight Eisenhower, not to Dwight Eisenhower for his, right. uh, his farewell speech. Yeah. But I mean, so that's, you know, that's but that includes Walt Disney as, you know, having replaced campfire storytelling and and yeah. you know the the, the story yeah. you know the narrative in the nursery and that that includes you know the green bay packers as a replacement for the sporting the sports team that you yourself are involved in mm -hmm. you know and i think that that's the difference is is that um you know the it's one thing for these you know this localism to be about actual stake you mm -hmm. know your you know the the you know your sense of place and of of uh you know the participation mystique and it's another thing for that desire to be commodified and sucked up into these this large commercial engine mm -hmm. um and so at any rate to your to your point like this is where the music and the the art kind of comes back into it um because uh there are you know the these things started out as ways of celebrating and and performing these sort of uh, you know cosmological and and community oriented practices, these you know these concerns and these worldviews, and you know I think it's actually really I think I'm kind of like doomed to failure, commercial failure as an artist, because it's always been a a, a matter of great personal interest to me to try and challenge the erection of the stage and this the separation of the artist and the audience in my work and 
people are not on that tip. Like, you yeah, know, and, I ran you know, it goes back yeah. to it goes back to participation, right? Right. So, music, art, performance was originally part of that community around the campfire, and then it became part of the religious expression of the of the people gathering together, and it became. You know, a, a lot of it originated out of the, the religious impulses. I mean, if you look at the, you know, what the Middle Ages created in terms of art, art architecture and, and, and music, you know, and its trans, transformative qualities. So now you're pointing out that that's all been dis, disengaged. It's now uh, the commercialization of the artistic enterprise to, you know, sell concert tickets. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to diminish the work of the artists and musicians that are really striving to create messages and relate to their, to their audience, but it's in a very different context and a very different environment. And, and what seems potentially to be missing is that connection to the transcendent, the, you know, the, the, the grand scale, the, the immensity of what we're all experiencing together, um, you know, because we don't have the performance. It's now now an observer. We're passive observers of what's going on there. We're not participating, and um, you know, and it's been removed from that context. So, um, you know, how do we reach back to the roots of music and art to fill the heart and connect us with creation and with the rest of humanity? Is there a way to do that? Well, okay, so just a little bit of, you know, personal history here, which is that for 13 years after college and before I started at the Santa Fe Institute, I was on festival circuit, primarily in the United States, but, you know, some some Australia and Europe and Canada and Costa Rica and so on. And I, I inhabited a world of so-called transformational festivals that were really striving to do what you're talking about mm -hmm. you know they were striving mm -hmm. to to use the the festival not as merely a commercial container but as a container for facilitating these uh transcendent experiences that people could then you know integrate in some way in, in the rest of their lives you know burning man is a a kind of textbook example of this and and the problems that burning man has had in this regard are I think emblematic of the, the greater problem, which is, well, for starters, I mean, so I have friends that are, you know, still in that world and have, it's been a joy to watch them come up into, you know, their sort of, you know, relative measure of commercial success. And they have, you know, it's like the Grateful Dead kind of thing. You know, they have people that mm -hmm. tour around following them. Yeah. Uh, and, a bit like a cult, a bit like yeah, a religion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, okay. nom a nomadic, uh, yeah. you know, cult of some kind. But, like, it's, at the same time, like, most of their fans are people that see the band maybe once or twice a year, and the rest mm -hmm. of the time that they're just in their job, in the house, in the mm -hmm. suburbs, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a, a you know, my, the friends of mine that are familiar with that world it's a painful world to live in because you you miss so many people all the time. You know, you've made friends that live all over the world and you cannot see them most of the time. And so your community just as, 
you know, in the effort to sort of reconnect everything that has been torn asunder by these processes we're discussing, uh, you know, you, you, the closest relationships that you have are with people hundreds or thousands of miles away from you. Yeah. And so I don't, you know, it's not that it's not that this stuff is not functioning in a way that you and I are describing. It's it is in fact reconnecting people to whatever you might call the sacred. It, it is giving people a sense of participation in community. But it's not providing like I, I know around maybe two, 2013 or 14 people started getting really fed up with they're like wait a minute we're just you know this this is not doing what it's supposed to do. You know, this festival environment is not giving people, uh, I mean, you know, most of these places are venues that have to be rented and, you know, it's not even guaranteed mm -hmm. the festival is going to be on the same site next mm -hmm. year. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the infrastructure is constantly being re-erected and then torn down. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing, you're not working towards anything that is building on itself incrementally, ultimately. And the commercial right. concerns around the festival are such that, you know, I'd worked the same event for five years and then they would decide that, no, we don't actually, you yeah. know, now that you have a bunch of people that want to see you play at this festival, we're actually going to go with yeah. someone else because we need yeah. to keep refreshing it with new acts. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, it and think of that, con contrast that with, for example, what, what Athens did in terms of building the, you know, the, the, uh, the theater. You know, and, and right. the culture that was behind that and that knitted it together, or the, or the Rome, the Colosseum in Rome, which is a different animal entirely. But <laughs> without that, without those constructs, uh, you know, it's just a, a, you know, a give and take. By the way, um, I attended Woodstock in 1969. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, talk about festivals. Uh, very yeah. interesting. We can, you know, we can kind of talk about our observations, uh, you know, a festival life. But... What you're pointing out is that this this movement is kind of disconnected from the underpinnings of a culture, supportive culture and society that values that not not just in terms of monetary terms because you know is are, are we in a society where everything's boiled down to monetary terms and that's going to miss so much it misses you know most of the heart connections that people might have with things and yet we don't have an infrastructure which can help sustain that, at least at this point. You know, one of, the, one of the questions is whether we have lots of areas where people are kind of exploring alternative ways of making those connections, coming back again to something that connects, you know, the head, the heart, the creative impulse, the community spirit, in a way that can, you know, transcend those boundaries in some sense. And, you know, we have technology now allows, you know, we're 3,000 miles apart and here we are having a wonderful conversation. And, you know, I consider you, I consider you a friend. We've got, we've got this connection. So maybe there are ways that, you know, some of that can kind of begin bubbling up out of the, 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 the sense of dissatisfaction that people have that maybe can stimulate these kinds of things to start having more than just nominal commercial success. So, oh, so there's, you know, I, I watch Star Trek. I'm quite a, a fan of that franchise. And uh, I think it's been interesting to watch over the last 10 years, especially how the utopian vision of Star Trek has been interrogated, has been challenged in some of the latest uh, series that they put out, you know, particularly in, in Discovery and, and Picard. 
Although it really started with like Deep Space Nine and, and you know, the surfacing of the concerns of the oppressed and of, you know, minorities in, in the, you know, in this sort of exalted view of the Federation, the, you know, the Roddenberry yeah. uh, vision for, uh, you know, what a, sort of a secular humanism, post-capitalist space civilization would look like. And a lot of people have taken issue with that, you know, that it's 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 popping their bubble, you know. But I think it's right. beautiful because, um, well, like when we talk about how do you reconcile the, you know, the celebration of and the need for diversity with these more sweeping and, and in, you know, kind of inclusive values or virtues, it seems like what it what Star Trek is saying is that it takes faster than light travel, you know, whether that's through the transporter technology or whether it's through, you know, the warp drive that you can't even really begin to assault xenophobia. And that's, you know, that ultimately that's, that story is about the, the, the incremental assault of xenophobia, you know, like the, you know, the Klingons start out as enemies and then you have one working on the, the bridge of the, the Enterprise and then you move on to the Romulans and the Romulans end up getting folded into us. And then, you know, even more lately, it's like the Borg. Like suddenly we can even talk about the Borg possibly being, a, you know, an ally rather than a, a, you know, a purely evil foe other. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, like, I wonder about that because we're learning both about the, you know, I mean, if we're going to take everything we've said about, you know, the, the inadequacy of models and apply it to real sort of geopolitical concerns, we realize now that both in some sense, in the sense of like nuclear fallout reigns all over the planet that borders are not what we thought they were and -hmm. they cannot be defended in the way that we used to think they could be. But also that when you connect everything to everything else, uh, the whole enterprise becomes so much more fragile and vulnerable, you know? And, and so we do need to enforce boundaries of some kind, even if we understand on some level that those boundaries are constructions or that they are, you know, transitory. Um, and so like, I wonder about, you know, the degree to which, uh, you know, a, a, a transporter network or, you know, faster than light travel and, you know, these things that are exalted as a solution in Star Trek remind me again of, you know, the like amazon.com or email or these other things that, that are so erosive to whether it's, you know, the, the ecological or the cognitive and attentional underpinnings of the human scale. Um, 
and so I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm not. Yeah, I that's you a, know, you keep asking tough, me these questions, yeah. and I'm like, <laughs> look, all I can do for you, and this is this is sort of true of you know the the way that complex system science seems to be practiced at, at SFI is they're like, we're not here to give you answers. You know, what we're here yeah. to do is to give you ways of thinking about how to how to how to face these wicked problems a little bit more cogently and you know we're, we're here to give you constraints and say these are the limits within which you can make these you can make a decision but we can't tell you what to, what decision to make yeah, ultimately yeah. and and so you know again like just as an artist you know i i, I live within the the sort of the bumpers of wanting my work to connect people wanting it to to you know challenge the dissociation of the artist and the and the in the audience um but at the same time recognizing that a lot of people are deeply uncomfortable with that you know i ran a, a residency for over two years in austin where i would bring people up from the audience non-musicians and and loop them and remix their their random noises into something approximating music and and yet i'm you know even as i'm demystifying the, the process of live music production um, i'm also using technologies that are you know expensive and hard to learn and mm -hmm. you know so and there's this kind of there's mm -hmm. this kind of fan dance Distancing. between between you know the interest that people have in yeah. mystique and the interest that people have in participation. Yeah. And I yeah. haven't found a, uh, you know, even night to night, the balance between those two things has to be sort of reinvented. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so it's a, there's some aspects of um, these efforts that are uh, affirming and positive, and yet there's also uncertainties and dissatisfaction. It's kind of like the ambivalent, the ambivalence of both both aspects of it. Not, you know, and I I feel the same way. For example, about children, you, they're my grandchildren up over my shoulder. There are nine of them, and you know, uh, great joy and great anxiety in the same instant. You know, yeah. so we're we're in this ambivalent phase, and perhaps in this modern post you know, scientific realism, you know, post-world, we have to be aware of the ambivalence. This goes back to maybe the Zen concepts of, you know, kind of at the same time, both sides of the yin and the yang are present in the, in the exact moment. So we have to be able to get comfortable with that ambivalence in a way that very, very, you know, humans don't like that ambivalence. It's, you know, we want clear answers, simple answers, you know, give, me, give it to me straight, don't you know, and yet that's inconsistent with the kind of world that we're seeing emerge out of the science that comes up, comes from complexity science. So we've got to be kind of get used to that, some of that ambivalence, and learn how to deal with it, um, maybe the way the Zen masters do. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question about the, uh, you know, the SFI environment. Clearly, complexity science was was out of the out of the sphere of conventional science for a period of time you know it was kind of on the edge um, and as a matter of fact uh, I did some work on uh, E.O. Wilson's book Consilience which oh, yeah. is a wonderful wonderful book I love that book um, uh, Dan Sanderson and I put together a podcast series on that on that book and 
you know, the, it was great, but he dissed com complexity science as, you know, kind of a bunch of off offbeat guys, you know, not really having any, you know, coherent ability to draw together, which is what, what he was talking about in that book. Um, so they were kind of outside the fold. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, that, that, that community. Does, does SFI, you know, have a sense of community and obviously they've got people now from all over the world that have attended sessions or been part of that and now they're you know is there a diaspora or a global global um, sense of something coming out of the SFI in terms of itch culture and what it's what it feels like to be part of the SFI I mean there there is uh but at the same time, you know, my work in, in communications there, not as a scientific researcher, but as a, an interlocutor, um, you know, I don't think that there was really, because that place is structured as a kind of scientific monastery and it's cloistering is so crucial to the work that, that you know, the space that it's providing for people to come together in these, you know, cross-disciplinary or non-disciplinary uh, collaborations, they are in some sense challenged by their own success, by the growing acceptance of the importance of complex systems thinking, because in a way they've become kind of like a pilgrimage site mm -hmm. uh, for this growing body of complex systems enthusiasts, both academic and non-academic, and they cannot possibly, I mean, it's the same as like you opening your email, like there's no mm -hmm. way to keep up with the attention that is now yeah. being demanded of you. Yeah. And so it's been, you know, it's, it's part of my work has been to try and help them uh, understand and, and permit and attend to a kind of tent city of pilgrims that has, you know, historically not been recognized as uh, their responsibility, I guess. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and, and this is true of a lot of, you know, this is not, this is not unique to them. Um, it is always a challenge, I think, as, you know, a musical act or, you know, anyone uh, who, you know, it's, it's very hard for us to understand what, popularity means until you are until already besieged by besieged yeah. by the paparazzi yeah. Yeah. you know and yeah. so yeah. like you know all of us want i think on some level enough attention to to you know muster the resources that we need in order to achieve the things we want in our life but the cost of that is that um you, right. you can lose the, spont thin. the spontaneity, the spontaneity and and uh, freedom that allowed you to do what you did then starts to become constrained. Yeah, by, the question of to what, what degree you're answerable to your mm -hmm. audience if you're like Radiohead yeah. or yeah. whatever yeah. is like, and they've done a very good job, I think, uh, yeah. you know, pursuing their own. Radiohead or SFI? Oh, Radiohead. I mean, both. <laughs> both of them, I think, have done a great job of of keeping their ethos their identity and, yeah. you know and, and their the, their maverick nature yeah. intact yeah. but i mean it is it is always you know and I, again to get back to this issue of you know how science is conducted 
um, you know, even if you're not taking donations that determine the nature, the course of scientific research, then there's still. Or a you're sense. at an academy. You're at an academy. You're still on the payroll. So I mean, that, it's, I mean, it's yeah. Still, I mean, that you're, yeah. you know, that they, they still. At this point now, they originally they had something to prove, and now that now they have a title to maintain. Yeah. yeah. And so you know the maintenance of prestige has its own costs, and 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 it's very much like the way that an organism grows. You know, at first, all of us are very playful, and then we we become more. The bigger you are, the harder you fall, right? So you you become you take fewer and fewer risks, risks. as you get older. Because right. you're aware that falling over and breaking a hip can kill yeah. you at some point. You but know? at a certain point, the older you get, you can say, oh, what the heck? I'll just, I'll just take those risks. Right? And the oldest scientists, yeah. you know, the people like, like uh, Jeffrey West at SFI and are far more comfortable entertaining weird ideas yeah. than yeah. the people that are still trying to earn tenure or find a, right. you know, find right. a faculty appointment or right. these kinds one of, of things. One of my personal favorites is Roger Penrose who, who yeah. is, you know, he's, he's beyond boundaries. He's beyond, you know, the, that point. Um, uh, here's a, there's a metaphor about the fact that the monasteries of the Middle Ages, and this is, this is from Joseph, Joseph Heinrich's uh, work at Harvard, um, the monasteries uh, created an environment which allowed sort of an evolution of what then became the academies there were a lot of other things going on, uh, you know, in that time period as well, and that was the seedbed from which the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution emerged. So here's a positive way of thinking about Santa Fe Institute and its problems: is you know maybe maybe this is going to be the seedbed for the 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 uh, more effective and and positive uh, way of organizing the, the world and our response to complex system dynamics, complex adaptive systems, which of course we're living in on all multi-scale levels, you know, to be able to view that in a way that helps us understand and synthesize and become part of what will be the 22nd century, you know, ethos world and achieving, you know, achieving things for humanity that we can hardly even imagine today given the problems we're facing. Yeah, think that's a think that's a way. Think I mean, it. more broadly speaking, again, Bill Thompson, uh, in his founding of the Lindisfarne Association, which was this interdisciplinary think tank for the immunization of planetary culture that he started back in the nineteen seventies after rage quitting at MIT, um, and that included people like you know Lindisfarne included people like. Uh, Stuart Brand and E.F. Schumacher and Lynn Margulis and, you know, right. uh, Stu Kaufman and, uh, yep. you know, uh, they, they, they were instrumental in the founding of the Mind and Life Institute and the, you know, the yeah. foundations of neurotheology and so on. They, uh, you know, Danella Meadows, all these people that, I mean, it's yeah. like a, it, the, the roster is a who's who list of, of influential systems thinkers, Greg Bates and they, you know, they understood that exactly what you're saying, that this, there was something about the, the preservation of culture through these interregnum periods where the Vikings come and they storm 
you know, mm. um, the mm. monasteries and so on that, or, you know, there's another way to think about it, which is that I think, you know, based on work like that of my friend, Bruce Damer and, and his mentor, Dave Deemer at the university of California, Santa Cruz on the origins of life. I think they're making a very, very strong case now that life must have as Darwin originally imagined started in a geothermal ponds mm-hmm. rather right. than in the open ocean, rather than right. around these, these deep sea thermal vents, because right. this, the water is a solvent and in a large enough body of water, you cannot maintain the, you cannot you know, create a container for mm-hmm. these, these intricate chemical reactions to unfold. And so it has to happen in a smaller body. It has to happen in, in you know, little pools in, and puddles. Right. That go you know, real dry, cultural wet, innovation wet, happens wet. on islands, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. so there is actually a problem on some level with the the project of consilience, as E.O. Wilson imagines mm. it, which is that, you know, as as I've talked about with Simon Dedeo on, on episode 72 of Complexity, you know, consilience, this idea of of explaining everything at once is in tension with a different heuristic for what constitutes a satisfying simple explanation and that you know consilience as practiced by revolutionary physicists like James Clerk Maxwell in you know the the, a theory of electromagnetism is essentially a conspiracy theory between electricity and magnetism it's you know realizing Mm -hmm. that these things have a hidden unification right it's a hegelian dialectic it's a it's a it's a zen unification of opposing but if you don't have yeah but if you don't have uh you know a a check in place by people that that want rather the simplest like write it on a Mm t-shirt explanation even Mm -hmm. if it leaves out other phenomena that cannot be explained right then you end up with this sort of you know what is pejoratively called conspiracy theory yeah where you know um you know you're not actually applying a kind of like a principle of parsimony Mm -hmm. and so you know that the you know to think about it like as you're as you're alluding to this this you know this idea that i mean these two ways of of coming to an explanation resemble the drive toward a you know a more sort of introspective or or locally locally focused kind of community operation versus a much more uh you know globalist or universalist Mm -hmm. uh which is a more consilient enterprise ultimately yeah but of course like in so doing you you lose the efficiency as i talked about with tyson young caporta on Mm -hmm. i think 172 of future fossils um you know Tyson coming from the Appalachian clan in, in in you know the, <laughs> the unceded lands of Australia um, that this is you know we talked about you know the way that fair hiring practices in the modern world require an open call but then you spend months trying to hire the right person when you knew the whole time that the right person was like your cousin or something mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. know and so there are these there's this tension again between in a different way the the efficiencies involved in you know what is this effectively like you know cronyism yeah 
versus yeah. the efficiencies, the different kinds of efficiencies and virtues involved in the way that the modern world regards fairness and like the execution right. of, of fairness. Right. And so again, right. like we're getting back to this thing about like, well, what looks fair at the level of the state is not necessarily like what looks fair to the level of, of the individual, the, the communities that comprise that yeah. state yeah. or yeah. the individuals that comprise those communities. And these, this is not as my view is again, I don't, this is not soluble. Right. You know, right. th this is a tension that is, you know, irreducible and in fact necessary, uh, you know, otherwise, otherwise we, you know, we collapse into some sort of, you know, um, myopic, thinking mm. that then becomes vulnerable to to you know endogenous or exogenous yeah. disruption yeah. And, and so so, we want so it sounds like yeah it sounds like one of the things that we that one of the takeaways is that we 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 need to be able to be comfortable with ambivalence and we need to be able to be comfortable with tension uh these are part of part of uh you know the way dynamic systems work and evolve and adapt and you know so we just need to be comfortable with those and not not necessarily always jump to the fixed result, the simple answer, the best, you know, this is the blah, 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 you know, we're, we're, we need to be comfortable, ambivalence, uncertainty, uh, the dynamic tension or the, or the conflicts, of, the tensions of conflict. Um, Michael, this has been spectacularly fun and I really, really enjoyed it. I have one final question for you. Um, mm -hmm. Do you would, you, would you have any uh, example in your own history of what you characterize as a personal transcendent experience, unexplainable, unexplainable, mystical, something that was really important in the shaping of who you are, and it just was something you you experience and don't necessarily have a have a good explanation for. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've got lots of those. Uh, I I have told this story a few times on you know future fossils and other other shows if you go back to 185 i give a fairly thorough recounting of a series of ufo encounters i had in 2006 and 7 uh, that i think almost systematically challenged me in the way that yeah. my friend stuart davis uh calls you know, he says, I think the ontological shock yeah. of the UFO phenomenon seems to be just an essential part of it. If not like, you know, if in fact this is the, the work of, you know, an inscrutable in, um, other, you know, yeah. an, an intelligence of some kind, then it seems that what it is trying to do is to forbid us from making any kind of sense of it, you know, right. as an, as a developmental, um, catalyst, you know, as, yep. as a, as a call into the transrational, you know, because we can't, we can't reasonably ignore these phenomena at the same time. We, we are constantly deprived of any, satisfying explanation for them yeah was this in new mexico no this was in kansas kansas yeah, yeah. so uh, it's interesting that i think there was a report recently uh, within the last year from whether it was dod or nasa i'm sure that that affirmed that these just can't be explained 
mm-hmm. many of them they, they cannot they cannot be explained either either under under known science or you know anything there's just no explanation so you're I think you're on firm footing for having identified that as a as one of those mysteries that that cannot be you know cannot be categorized or answered or explained and yet they they are something that you know that have happened I recently posted yeah. a a uh, series of slides to my patreon that they're publicly available that were from my 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 contribution to a larger presentation for the diverse intelligences summer institute last year where i was you know that what we were trying to do uh, together was provide an argument that the search filters used by astrobiologists are too narrow mm. um and that you know that we need to be much humbler about the the criteria by which we look for non-human intelligence Mm -hmm. um and you know and i mean that that would go into more detail here than Mm -hmm. we have time for yeah so i think we'll we'll stop right there because i think that the the humbler aspect or the humility aspect you know you know we talked about a couple of things that you know that we ought to hold on to uh as we go down this road and humility is you know i think one of those key virtues to be able to keep us from running off the rails and, you know, or, or uh, over-interpreting or under-interpreting or denial or whatever it is. Um, Michael, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time and your contributions. I uh, urge everybody to listen to your podcast at uh, the SFI Complexity Podcast or Future Fossils Podcast and, you know, the music and art that you have out there. It's really, uh, it's really great. It's great to meet you, great to spend time. And I think we're gonna have to come back at some point because there's there are too many loose ends to follow up on. Thanks, George. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Making Sense of Complexity. Next episode, I will be joined by Blue Knight, an independent consultant with broad experience in neurobiology, predictive analytics, bioinformatics, yoga, meditation, and art. A co-organizer of the Complexity Weekend and the Active Inference Lab, Blue seeks to integrate her broad range of experience and interests into a balanced life. In the meantime, please explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Weekend, PlankSip, and Talk of Today, and join the conversation on our social media outlets or on spiralinquiry.org. Stay well and have a great week.